Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, coming to you from the Coming Home Network International and, uh, and, and by uh, the uh, broadcast of EWTN Radio. Thank you for joining us on this program. Every week we invite a guest to join us to talk about a particular scripture text or section that was an encouragement to them on their walk in following Jesus Christ and coming home to the Catholic Church. And often, as is maybe the case today uh, with our guests, these are verses that, though on the one hand they were quite familiar with Scripture, yet there was a verse or two that took them by surprise, maybe even seemed like a verse they never saw before. And our guest for today is Dr. Frank Herman. He's been on the Journey Home program. If uh, you want to go to EWTN, the website, you can find the interview that we did with Dr. Herman, when he joined me on the Journey Home program, he is uh, entered the Catholic Church in 1996, having converted from the Reformed Baptist faith. In his days as an evangelical, he pursued a degree in biblical studies at Criswell College in Dallas, Texas, and later took up studies at the Summer Institute of Linguistics while exploring the possibility of joining Wycliffe Bible Translators. However, God had other plans for Frank. He's now the assistant professor, an assistant professor of English at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, where he lives with his wife and four children. And uh, it's good to have Frank there at the university. And I just talked to him a moment ago in this summer. He's teaching a course in C.S. Lewis. Maybe that'll come up in our conversation because I, I know long before I ever thought about the Catholic faith, uh, when I was very committed to my evangelical Protestant faith, uh, C.S. Lewis was so important to uh, many aspects of my understanding, kind of the bigger picture of Christianity. Now, just to remind you, this program is connected with a website, deepinscripture.com, where you can have many, there's lots of information, there's lots of links, you can get all the old archive programs, you can even uh, find out ways to contact us if you have a question, if you'd love to We'd love to have your question for this program. You can call us at 800-664-5110 or anytime, especially if you're outside North America, you can call us at 740-450-1175. And today, the email for today, if you have any email question, you can send it to us at radio at chnetwork.org. You also, on the website, can watch this program live if you'd like to see me sitting here in our studio. So we'd love to have you join us. Now, Frank chose for his text today one from Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 18, and then one from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 15. And I will say that uh, I, I, I click with him on these passages because particularly the verse in 2 Thessalonians was one of those verses I didn't see that opened my heart to the fullness and truth of the Catholic faith and the Matthew passage also. I wasn't even sure how to deal with that passage when I was a Presbyterian, so we'll look at that in a moment. But let me read these for you. We'll take a break and then Dr. Herman will join us. So first, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then in Paul's letter, second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. 
save the dates. On October 9th and 10th, the EWTN Family Celebration will be coming to Mother Angelica's hometown of Canton, Ohio, and we hope to see you there. Join the EWTN family as we celebrate the life and legacy of Mother Angelica. Saturday, October 9th, and Sunday, October 10th. Log on to EWTN.com or call 205-271-2989 for more information. And stay tuned. More details will be coming soon. If you enjoy the Journey Home Television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Gerdai's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Gerdai's book, Journeys Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and I'm joined today by Dr. Frank Herman. Hello, Frank. Hello, Marcus. Glad to have you on the program. Good to be here. Now, is this a, a free afternoon for you after or before classes? Or Actually, this is before classes. Okay. Oh, so you're, you're on the docket here after you're done with the program. Yes, sir. All right. A little bit of C.S. Lewis this afternoon? Uh, yes, yeah, we're going to be looking at uh, Out of the Silent Planet and uh, Screwtape Letters. Oh, two great books, two great books. In fact, uh, one of my favorites, oh, I mean, how many, they're all favorites. You know, The Great, <coughs> the great Divorce is so cool, and uh, of course, uh, that hideous strength is so right. powerful, especially when you're teaching in an academic institution and you, you see some of the same things happening today that were even more prevalent than in his day. Uh, you know, just a great writer. So thanks for doing that for your students. Um, in fact, I'd love to ask, it wasn't part of our planning, but was C.S. Lewis a part of your own spiritual journey? Is that what brought you teaching him? Uh, he was. He did play a part. Um, you know, he, his conversion somewhat paralleled mine. I was never an atheist as he was. Uh, I was more of a deist. But um, the notion that Jesus Christ was either a liar, lunatic, or Lord appealed to me, and yeah. through that process of deduction, I was able to come to the conclusion that, you know, as C.S. Lewis did, that he was not a liar, <laughs> he was not a lunatic, <laughs> but uh, that he must be Lord. Well, that's the appeal of, of mere Christianity for so many people. I, the other imagery that he used, I think it was in that book, but I wasn't sure where he, he addresses those that you know, boldly claim there is no God, and he asks the question, which is easier to prove, that there is no spider in this room or there is a spider? You know, that, mm -hmm. that, whole, that whole issue. And proving there is no God is like saying there's no spider in the room. It'd take forever to absolutely prove that, and, and it's, it is a walk of faith. But I'll tell you also uh, that exactly two weeks from today ago, I was sitting in the Eagle and Child. Is that right? Yep. You know what I'm talking about, of course? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I happened to be in Oxford two weeks ago, and I was having both dinner and then lunch the next day in the, that favorite pub where Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and the others of the Inklings would gather. Right, right, the famous Inklings. Yep, yep. So, uh, now, Frank, you've chosen Matthew 18 and uh, 2 Thessalonians. Um, and I'm wondering, even before we jump into those passages, one deals, the Matthew passage in, has a number of things. One is, is actually dealing with somebody that you've got a problem with. You know, so Jesus gives us a, a method there, but in, involved with that is the church and the authority of that. And of course, Second Thessal Thessalonians deals with traditions. I'm wondering, just kind of in general, were these particular passages significant, partially because of the particular b faith that you came from, the Reformed Baptist faith? Uh, not particularly because of uh, the denomination that I was affiliated with, okay. uh, but because I was outside of the Catholic Church and rejected this whole hierarchical structure 
you know, and the idea that the church had authority, and also because of the doctrine of sola scriptura, which is where, of course, Second Thessalonians comes in. Right, right. Well, let's uh, let's look at first the Matthew passage, if you would, and uh, let me read it again real quickly for the audience, just in case you know they're driving and they didn't hear it. It's real short enough, uh, and then why don't you go ahead and explain to the audience, uh, you know, what you found about this passage. That opened your heart to the church. I'll begin with verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, did, did you have a, a, a way of interpreting this back when you were a Reformed Baptist, or did you just kind of ignore it or didn't see it? I just ignored it. It was one of the texts that I was more or less oblivious to. You know, there <laughs> were those texts that I had a problem with and, and tried to run from, such as the second chapter <laughs> of James, where he says that we're justified by works and not by faith alone. That's right. Uh, texts like that I ran from and, you know, hunted commentary after commentary to, to try to find an explanation that, that uh, was in line with my beliefs. But this particular verse, um, you know, I had encountered it, I had read it many times, but the import of it really had never sunk in. Uh-huh. Uh, it had just completely escaped me. So, I, so basically I ignored it. Yeah, sometimes I've heard people interpret it in such a way that they want to give authority to that local gathering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was a Congregationalist, and, and the primary verse that describes Congregationalism is the verse which is not far from this passage that says that whenever two or more are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of you. Mm-hmm. To us that made a church, right? So right. two or more make a church. Well, if that's the case, then verse 16 took care of that. You know what I mean? you got mm-hmm. two or three and you're gathered, well that's the church. But this seems to imply a whole lot more. Uh, than that. Um, so talk more about this passage in terms of your journey with it. Mm-hmm. Well, this passage echoes, of course, uh, the famous uh, passage in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 5, uh, and it lays down the protocol for the way in which the Christian community is to deal with sin and its members. It's a three-step process. First, rebuke your brother privately. Uh, if he doesn't listen to you, second, uh, get one or two other uh, witnesses involved, two or other, uh, one or two other Christians, and if he doesn't listen to them, thirdly, take it to the church. Now, if he doesn't listen to the church, treat him as an unbeliever. In other words, sever your communion with him. That's what this passage is about. It's about excommunication. Now, why is that important? Well, there are several reasons. First of all, the passage presupposes a singular church and a unity of its members mm-hmm. in judgment. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say, take it to the churches, plural. <laughs> Rather, he says, take it to the church. He uses the definite article, te ecclesia. And the term ecclesia occurs only twice in the Gospels here, and then also in Matthew 16, 18, which is um, a passage that has a lot of overlap with this one concerning uh, the binding and loosening, for example. Right. Uh, so the passage um, entirely loses its import in a society with a plurality of churches. Uh, you talked earlier about uh, one interpretation, meaning that this applies to the local congregation. Yeah. Well, at that time, uh, yes, yeah, sure, you had house churches and so forth, but uh, all the congregations were basically united in the faith, mm-hmm. so that any decision that occurred in one local congregation was respected in the other. And uh, uh, we know, for example, from... 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, that the purpose of excommunication is to lead the sinner to repentance. Mm-hmm. The idea is that the impenitent will mourn, being cut off from the communion of the church, so much that he repents and is restored to fellowship. And this is exactly what we see uh, in First and Second Corinthians. The man having the affair with his stepmother is excommunicated, then he repents, and his communion is restored. But in a world with a plurality of churches, excommunication loses its force. Church excommunicates me for having an abortion or for practicing homosexuality? No big deal. I'll just go down the street to church. Why? 
they'll accept me. They understand. Yeah, just find a church that that promotes what you got excommunicated for. I mean, exactly. Yeah. But that wasn't the way it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no church why in those days. If you were excommunicated, that was it. You had nowhere to turn. You had no recourse. And obviously, going out and starting your own church wasn't an option that Jesus entertained. Uh, which is exactly what we see today. Yeah, and the danger, uh, Frank, just, just just to maybe to express an obvious that I'm sure our audience sees, but just in case, that we have to be, always be careful when we read back into the, do, the uh, details in the book of Acts, our present confusion. And just because in the book of Acts, for example, this issue of whether the church in Corinth or the church in Galatia or the church in Thessalonica or the church uh, in the different places, there's a lot of these little home churches, just the idea that they're not talking about the fact that they are united doesn't mean that it was an issue. It's something they absolutely presumed to be true. The idea that there would be denominations, I am. there's no evidence that that would ever cross their mind and in fact, whenever there is some kind of division, that is brought up, like in 1 Corinthians, right? That's true. You know, those that are following Apollos or Paul or Peter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Galatians, those that want to preach a little bit different gospel. You know, immediately it's about when the division is, is hinted at, Paul or James or John or one of the New Testament writers jumps on that real good. There's one faith, one baptism. That's right. And one, and one church. Yep. And that church has authority, and the authority of the church is to be respected, not to be disputed. And, um, you know, I was, in my conversion process, I was uh, fond of uh, doing these little thought experiments and, uh, you know, transporting myself back to the late first, early second century and imagining, okay, well, what (laughs) if I had believed this, or what if I had taught this? Would I have been excommunicated? (laughs) And uh, I would have. I would have. And in fact, there's a, a very famous example of this, this protocol being carried out in history. We see it um, in uh, 1521, in fact. <laughs> um, January 3rd, 1521, Pope Leo X issued a papal bull excommunicating Martin Luther. Luther had been given the opportunity to recant uh, several times, <laughs> and of course he refused. He said, you know, here I stand, I can do no other. So what we see here is the church following the exact protocol laid out by the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew 18, chapters, uh, chapter 18, 15, 16, 17. Uh, the person sinning, in this case, defying the church and teaching heresy, and heresy, of course, is, is sin. Um, it is rebuked, and uh, he is given an opportunity to repent. He refuses to do so, and is excommunicated by the Pope. Now, what should our attitude be toward the one who is excommunicated? According to Scripture, we should shun him, yeah. treat him as a Jew would have treated a Gentile or a tax gatherer. But what did we do? Instead, we treated Martin Luther as a hero. We said, bully to you for standing your ground. Mm. Hooray to you for standing up to that antichrist of a pope. We did the exact opposite of what Jesus said we should do when somebody's excommunicated. You know, it's... It's interesting that you brought that very thing up because just this morning, before I came into work, I was reading uh, a biography of Martin Luther that had been um, written by a German Protestant Lutheran theologian, um, historian, and then translated into English. And it was, of course, very pro-Luther, big, thick thing. And as I was reading the description of his debate with Cajetan, um, you know, the, the author, this German Lutheran author, every time it, it talks about the church demanding that Luther recant, he's, the, the author is just assuming and presuming the audacity, audacity the arrogance of this church to de- demand that Luther recant without taking his private interpretation of Scripture as equally valid to what the church has been teaching for 1,500 years. That's right. And, I mean, you come from that background. I do, too. You know, I remember myself thinking the audacity of the Catholic Church to demand that Luther repent and get on his knees. 
uh, and at the time not seeing the absurdity of, of the way that I was thinking. Right. And Roland uh, Banton, in his um, popular biography on uh, Martin Luther, uh, tells us that Martin Luther himself had some doubts. Um, you know, was he correct? Was he the only one who had the truth, and you know, the rest of the world was, was wrong? Was the church wrong for so many centuries? And um, you know, he considered it arrogant for the, the church to try to impose its authority on him. But uh, again, what we see here is uh, a biblical injunction. We see a protocol that was laid down by Jesus because uh, the Lord knew very well that um, after he left, after his uh, ascension, that there would be uh, false teaching in the church. He knew that there would be conflict among its members. And uh, it's important to note here in this passage that um, even though against you occurs in many translations, uh, it's missing from many of the original manuscripts. And uh, most scholars believe that the phrase against you was added at a later date by a scribe. So uh, in the earliest manuscripts, uh, that, that uh, prepositional phrase is missing. So the sin, although it's unspecified, likely had implications for the entire community. It was something not trivial. Uh, my brother, you know, won't pay me back the $5 that, that uh, uh, yeah. I let him borrow. <laughs> but it was something that could cause scandal to the church. And what could cause more scandal to the church than, um, you know, heresy of, of this kind of magnitude? And put, putting this in the context of not only the rest of the New Testament, but the early church fathers, if your brother sins, so that's what the original phrase would have been, if your mm -hmm. brother sins, there's a lot of theology just in that little phrase. I mean, just the fact that he's using the word your brother is bringing into it all that Paul will talk about later about baptism brings you into the body of Christ. You know, we're made one, Gentile, Jew, we're, we're brothers. In that sense, he's not just talking about everybody in the world. In other words, if another human being sins, he's talking about a brother. In other words, a part of the church. Uh, behind that is the implication of baptism. Uh, and again, as you said, well, today when we see somebody sinning, do we generally carry this out at all? Right. What's your thought on that, Frank? I mean, we see people sinning all the time, but do we do this? Mm -hmm. Well, obviously one has to use discretion. Um, you know, it wouldn't be prudent to, to uh, <laughs> rebuke our our brothers and sisters for for every fault uh, without looking at the log in our own eye. But uh, exactly. you know, I think the, the import of this passage is is not that the the brother has has committed um, a small fault or, or a small right. transgression, but has done something serious, uh, either seriously sinning against uh, uh, you or is uh, committing some kind of sin that could bring scandal on the church, uh, and, and is a sin of the gravity. Uh, that needs to be rebuked and not something that should just be, be overlooked. Yeah, and we have people in the church. So in other words, this is not so much concerned with just the, the population in general. These are brothers who are claiming to be in Christ. That's the assumption. Right. And so in other words, the sin is a contradiction to their their profession, which, which is really the background of the actual Inquisition, isn't it? I mean, the Inquisition, the issue of the Inquisition were people that claimed to be Christians but then weren't. And so that's why there was an Inquisition, because they were brothers, because they needed to be confronted. And so if they didn't respond, then that was the act of the Inquisition. Right. Um, this. Um, the the, uh, the 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 this pathway of one on one, two or three as a background, as you said, and then the church uh, again goes against what often happens today because today just the mere um, accusation often destroys a person's life completely without ever this nice process which helps which helps it be done in a charitable way. Right. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, we don't always <laughs> carry out this procedure the way that the Lord uh, commanded us to. 
it's, it's it, again, it's supposed to be uh, something that is done for the sake of uh, the person committing the sin, uh, to bring that person to repentance. Uh, excommunication was not intended to be a punishment, per se. It was intended to be uh, something that brought about reconciliation. In fact, it, when I was, it reminded me when I read that book that there were times in the history when an entire country was put under the interdict. So for 20 years, uh, Germany, that part of Europe, was under an interdict. No, no mass, no sacraments, no anything for anybody in that whole area mm -hmm. until the leadership came back in line with the right. teachings of the church. Let's take a break, Frank. When we come back, I'd like us to look at verse 18 for a little bit, sure. which is the other issue of this passage that neither you nor I dealt with when we were outside the Catholic faith. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Dr. Frank Herman, and you're hearing us on EWTN, the Global Catholic Radio Network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. Follow the compelling journey of one man who became a Church of Christ minister and found himself entering the Catholic Church. Bruce Sullivan shares his conversion story in his new book titled, Christ in His Fullness. In this book, he communicates a passionate love for Christ and the inexhaustible treasures of grace found in the Catholic Church. Perhaps you too will discover the same riches in the fullness of Christ. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, I'm joined by Dr. Frank Herman. And Frank, I, during the break, I was, I've got a Protestant study Bible in front of me here. Um, uh, one that I'm guessing you would have been familiar with back when you were a Reformed Baptist because it comes from more of a Reformed perspective and it had a f big, huge footnote on verse 17, which is kind of funny because it says God who ordained the church, in later order in the church as maintained, uh, Scripture enjoins the churches to maintain sound doctrine. It goes all the way down, all these differences on the church, but it never defines what is meant by the church. Mm -hmm. And knowing from where their background, they couldn't, they certainly couldn't have been promoting one church. This author couldn't have been promoting that because the, the committee that put this particular study Bible together did not represent one particular Protestant faith. So, again, that's what I would have done in this passage, kind of this, this kind of nebulous church. Right. I think that's the, the uh, reaction that many people have uh, upon first encountering this text is just to, um, you know, see the church as some kind of nebulous body that, uh, uh, yeah. you know, with, without a centralized authority or without any kind of hierarchy. And uh, it's fine to think of it that way, but uh, whenever the practical details come into play, you're forced to change your, your conception of the church. Uh, what if two churches disagree? What if, what if somebody sends and uh, the matter is brought to a particular church, and the church says, uh, you were wrong, uh, we excommunicate you, and then uh, the same uh, transgression is taken to a different assembly with different doctrines, and uh, they say, well, that's not a sin at all. Either you have conflict. But that kind of conflict isn't presupposed in, in the passage. Uh, again, the import suggests that there is a singular church, and that church is of one mind and one judgment. Yeah, and especially if you, if you uh, insert into this Calvin's understanding of an invisible church, I mean, how can that be confronted or consulted to make any decision? Or the d democratic churches that we have today where at each annual meeting they keep voting on certain issues and it keeps failing until <clears throat> finally one year they vote in a lifestyle that has always, for the history of the church, been considered immoral. That's right. But they got more votes. So that year, you know, in that case, verse 15, you confront a brother who's not, who's sinning against the teaching of the church, 
He says, no, this is the way I am. Verse 16, you get three or four to confront him and say, yeah, no, I can't help it. It's the way I am. It's the way I am. Until verse 17, take him to the church and pretty soon the church votes to go with him rather than you. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's essentially what's happened over and over and over again. Exactly. That, that's, that's what's happened you know, in today's society where you have this plurality of, of churches. Yeah. I mean, it's sad what, what our experience does to Scripture when you read back in, which puts to, puts to test Luther's own statement. He said, I'm not going to submit unless you can prove to me by Scripture. I'm just standing on Scripture alone. Well, no, he's standing on his own opinion of Scripture, and that's what got him in trouble. Verse 18, this one has got a lot of layers of interest. Mm-hmm. And uh, truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, what did you do with that as a Reformed Baptist? I did absolutely nothing with it. (laughs) I just skipped it, essentially. (laughs) I did, too, as a Presbyterian. I mean, I can't even imagine what I might have done with it if I had taken it seriously. Um, You know, I mean, what would we have have said? I I mean, doesn't it imply that a decision made on earth by whoever he's, Jesus is talking to, you, so he's talking to the apostles. Whatever decision the apostles make on earth is bound in heaven. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what it says, right? So as you looked at this, in what way did you come to understand this yourself in your own journey? Well, um, if I had tried to uh, uh, force an interpretation of this before I uh, came to the Catholic Church, I probably would have said something uh, along the lines of what we were talking about earlier, that uh, this applies to the local congregation. So, you know, you have uh, Congregation X, uh, they, they have uh, some kind of matter to adjudicate, and uh, God's going to respect their decision. Uh, but then again, you know, you, you, you come to this issue of, uh, you know, conflicting judgments. You know, when one church says one thing and another church says something else, and there's no agreement. So uh, who's the arbiter? You know, who's the final arbitrator in a situation like that? Uh, you can't have one unless you have a singular authority. So uh, I began to see that, well, after all, there must be some kind of visible uh, unity and some kind of singular authority. Otherwise, this passage makes no sense. Mm-hmm. In fact, after this section in Matthew, the next section is about Peter saying, how often should my, uh, shall I forgive my brother? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And then there's a whole parable about forgiveness. My heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So uh, it's really pushing for forgiveness. And again, if you don't have the overall teaching of the church and just did your own interpretation, you could almost use the verse that says, you know, you got to forgive everybody and use it to wipe out this whole section of Matthew 18. Mm-hmm. and saying the problem wasn't that you saw your son, your brother sinning, but the problem is you didn't forgive him. Just forgive him. Right. Uh, and so, once again, depending on how you interpret Scripture, you can make it say anything you want. Well, from a Catholic perspective, how do we understand verse 18 then? Well, uh, obviously commentators are divided as to exactly what uh, it means here when Jesus talks about uh, binding and loosening, but I think of all the scholars that I've looked at, one thing that they do agree on is that Jesus is talking about authority here. Right. Uh, you know, the, the notion of binding and loosening was, was an old rabbinical concept that would have been very familiar to uh, any Jew in the first century in Palestine. Um, and so, you know, what Jesus is saying is when you make a decision, when you gather together in your apostolic authority and you make a decision, you know, don't be afraid that I'm not going to be with you, okay? I stand with you. I stand behind you. I back up your decision. So whatever you decide on earth, that will be bound in heaven. So should you bind something, I bind it. Should you lose something, I lose it. You excommunicate somebody, they're excommunicated. You unexcommunicate somebody, they're unexcommunicated. And so Jesus agrees with with, um, uh, the church leadership in whatever they do on earth whatever they officially, the, the official decisions. Obviously, this doesn't uh, refer to um, personal faults, but whatever uh, the Pope would teach ex-cathedra 
whatever the uh, apostles in union uh, with the uh, Sea of Rome would uh, officially declare, officially bind or loose. Well, this passage uh, brings up a very important issue that, again, we as evangelicals took for granted, but leads into trouble, and that is to always read ourselves into Scripture as the recipients of what's being said. In other words, verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Who's Jesus talking to? Is he only talking to the people that were there present in front of him? And that's it? And then this, this passage dies out? Does it apply only to the leaders? Or does it apply to every Christian? And generally evangelical Protestantism tries to make almost take everything to imply, to apply to the individual Christian in relationship to Jesus. Mm -hmm. At least that was my experience in the past. Right, and what that does is it ends up creating a, an enormous contradiction because you have different small gatherings of, of believers and uh, they uh, arrive at different uh, conclusions and different judgments. And so if, if uh, group A and group B come to contradictory judgments and uh, uh, what they bind and loose is going to be bound and loosed in heaven, then God's contradicting himself, yeah. which can't be. Yeah, another good example of that is John 16, verse 13, when he promises the spirit of truth. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Who's the you in this? I mean, if... if in taking the other passages, if Jesus meant that when the Holy Spirit comes and fills us, that every Christian will have full knowledge, as John said in 1 John, you don't need a teacher anymore because you have the Holy Spirit. I mean, either we aren't hearing very well or the Holy Spirit is, is terribly confused. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have to wait, step back and say, wait a second, who is Jesus speaking to here? And well, it's, it's interesting to note that uh, there is parallel language in Matthew 16, 18, uh, where most commentators agree that Jesus is speaking specifically to Peter. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, he gives Peter the authority to bind and to loose. And uh, similar language is also used here, uh, which most scholars believe um, that Jesus is extending that authority not only to Peter, but is extending it to uh, all the apostles. And uh, we, of course, believe that the authority that the apostles had is passed down to their successors, the, the bishops today, so that they would have the same authority to bind and loose as the, uh, the original apostles had. And, and actually, uh, the reason that we study Scripture and these particular books of this canon of Scripture is because we believe, as in this verse, that Jesus was giving a particular inspiration and power and guidance to a certain group of people as opposed to every Christian in general. We take the scripture to be inspired in this canon because a group of bishops who had the apostolic authority were guided by the Holy Spirit to choose these books. Otherwise, why these books of, why this particular canon, right? right. Any group of Christians could have gathered and said, hey, no, I like these books or that book, which actually was what was happening. Mm -hmm, exactly. So once, basically, once you throw out the authority of the church, you basically undercut the authority of Scripture, which I wasn't ready to accept then, but I certainly am now. Mm -hmm. Let's take another break, if we would, Frank. Let's, let's come back and we'll look at that other great passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2.15, which again deals with soul scriptura and authority. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grote. I am joined by Dr. Frank Herman, and you're hearing us on EWTN, the Global Catholic Radio Network. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International, or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, 
please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. The Coming Home Network International and Marcus Grodi invite you to join us for our 8th Annual Deep in History Conference coming this fall to Columbus, Ohio. This year, our focus will be on the authenticity of the sacred scriptures as we ask, how firm is your foundation? Join us the weekend of October 22nd as we bring together another exciting list of guest speakers. For more information, go to deepinhistory.com or call us at 800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Frank Herman, and uh, we've just spent some time talking about Matthew 18. Now we're switching to 2 Thessalonians 2.15, which is a great verse, Frank. I mean, this, and I'll tell you, maybe it's not true for you, but this verse wasn't in my Protestant Bible. (laughs) It wasn't in mine either. (laughs) Somehow in the middle of the night, some Catholic must have slipped in there and got it printed in that. I don't know how he did it, but let me read this verse because, and I'd love you to talk about, you know, both your your blindness to this verse and why. And this is verse 15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us either by word of mouth or by letter. How did this thing hit you like a two-by-four? Well, uh, let me read to you what St. Thomas Aquinas says in his commentary on Second Thessalonians. <laughs> he says, It is obvious that many things which are not written down in the church were taught by the apostles and therefore should be followed. <laughs> and I think the learned saint sums it up perfectly, uh, and I'd have to agree with him. Um, you know, yep. It's interesting to look at this uh, language that St. Paul uses in this passage. Um, for tradition, he uses the term uh, paradosis, which means uh, literally to hand over or to hand down. Uh, in fact, in classical Greek, it was used uh, as a term for betrayal or arrest, so that when someone was uh, betrayed uh, and handed over to the authorities, they used uh, the term paradosis. Uh, by the time the, uh, the New Testament came around, uh, we see the term evolving to mean uh, not handing somebody over to the authorities, but handing over a teaching or a tradition. Mm-hmm. In fact, St. Paul uses the same term in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, where he says that uh, uh, he was very zealous uh, uh, to follow the traditions of his fathers, meaning, of course, the tradition of the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. Um, so St. Paul goes on to distinguish two types of paradosis. Okay? Uh, there is logos, which literally means word, and is the same word that uh, is used to, uh, to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ in John one one being the eternal word of God, uh, and the other type of paradosis uh, that Paul refers to in this passage is epistolase, which means epistle or letter. So uh, what we see here is St. Paul contrasting two types of paradosis. We have on the one hand oral paradosis, and then we have written paradosis, and he says that both are to be obeyed, and that flies in the face of the doctrine of sola scriptura which insists that epistolase is the only type of paradosis that is authoritative. Yeah, I'm wondering, did you try and explain this verse before, or just like me, just never saw it? I really never saw it. Yeah, yeah, I didn't either. I, as I looked back and tried to find how Protestants explain this, because obviously they do whenever there's a Protestant commentary on, on the on letters of Thess- to Thessalonica, they're, they're always talking about it. and. I think what I've heard is that they're saying that in the early days you have the oral tradition, but as it became uh, written down, then in time the Holy Spirit focused on that as the sole message, as if everything that had been said orally eventually got written down in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Well, one would be hard-pressed to find a scripture <laughs> that yeah. says that, mm-hmm. uh, so it, it, it's circular. Um, you know, I would have, I guess, if somebody had pressed me on this scripture, if a Catholic had pressed me on this scripture uh, back in my evangelical days, I would have said, well, that, that applied to the apostles or to the apostolic era. Uh, and again, now that we have a, a canon of scripture, then it doesn't apply. Well, that would have been a circular argument because I had no scripture 
yeah. on which to base that assumption. And secondly, it would have been historically erroneous because we didn't have a canon of Scripture yet That's right. uh, for centuries to come. Yep, yep. And, and even on top of that, there's plenty of historical evidence in the early church all the way through of the leaders of the church as well as uh, the full body of the church continuing to listen to both oral and written tradition. And in a sense, that's what the councils are dealing with. I mean, you have the council that declares the Trinity as the definitive understanding of God, but the word Trinity isn't in Scripture. Mm -hmm. And so in essence, it never even got into Scripture. So in essence, the oral tradition became written when it went down in the documents of the councils, but it never became a part of, of sacred Scripture. So we end up with these two against two tablets of our faith. Right, and that's, that's uh, a central argument that Cardinal Newman makes in his uh, essay on the development of Christian doctrine, is that um, you know, heresies aren't defined, a lot of doctrines aren't defined and put down in writing until there's uh, some kind of dispute, mm -hmm. at which point we're, the Church is, is forced to examine the issue and then come to a conclusion. And uh, we see this you know, in the, in the uh, Council of Jerusalem. You know, should, the, should uh, circumcision be imposed on the Gentiles? Uh, there wasn't any agreement. You know, what should they do? Uh, well, they came together in an ecumenical council, as you pointed out. Uh, they adjudicated. They made a decision. Uh, they, they bound, as it were, and uh, heaven, heaven uh, stood by them. And so that became uh, written down. Yeah, and this whole passage uh, would be strange, uh, very strange, unless there was something that Paul had taught, something not trivial, but something important, that he had not addressed in his writing, mm -hmm. that he had, he had taught uh, the Thessalonians. Uh, now, what that was specifically, we don't know, uh, but really that's not what's important. The important thing is that he taught them something that he did not write down, and then he commanded them to obey it. Now, according to Sola Scriptura, uh, the Christians at Thessalonica would have had no obligation to, to obey it because it was uh, only paradosis, it was only epistolase. Mm -hmm. uh, or, excuse me, it was only logos, it wasn't epistolase yet. So, um, but, you know, how, how would subsequent generations uh, know if something were not written down during the time of the Apostles, and if that doctrine were uh, uh, supposed to be abided by by subsequent generations of Christians, how would those subsequent generations get that information if it wasn't written down? Yeah. Only if it had been passed down to them orally. Mm -hmm. So the we have here the twin pillars of, of, yep. of uh, uh, tradition, uh, oral tradition and uh, written tradition. And as St. Thomas points out, the passage you know, plainly says that there were things that were written down uh, or th things that were taught that weren't written down and that they should be obeyed as well as the things that were written down. Yeah, something I didn't see when I was a Protestant, and, and Frank, I, like your comment on this, what I saw later was, if I add to this uh, a number of other verses, for example, you know, Matthew 28, go ye therefore and make disciples, baptizing them, and then teaching, teaching. Throw into that Romans 10, where it says, how are they going to believe unless they hear? How are they going to hear unless someone preaches? And how are they going to preach unless they're sent? The word apostle, apostolate. Throw that into it, 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, Now I would remind you, brethren, in what terms I preach to you the gospel, which you received and in which you stand. And then throw in 1 Timothy 3, 15, uh, where he says, I write these instructions to you so that if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave. There's a lot of things there, but one of them is it convinced me that the normal way that the apostles, that Paul, that John, the normal understood way of delivering the truth of the Christian faith was through preaching, was through the oral. And generally, the only reason they could write, they would write, is if they couldn't be there in person. That's correct. It was an add-on. Yeah, the, the kerygma, the, the proclaiming of, of the Word. That was the default method for communicating the Gospel, especially since at that time, um, 
you know, we didn't have books. We didn't, you know, the Gutenberg printing press hadn't been developed. We didn't have laser printers and so forth. So uh, it was very inefficient to write things down and to circulate the writing. A scribe had to do it. So, uh, you know, because of the constraints uh, that existed uh, in that time uh, with communication, the, the oral word, the logos, was by default the, the normal method that was used to proclaim the gospel. And it was only, um, you know, when uh, the Church had, had the means uh, with scribes to write things down and to cl- declare them in Church, and then later on um, uh, to, uh, to bind everything together, that we started referring to it as the Biblios, you know, or the canon of, uh, of Scripture. Uh, it was otherwise just a, an oral tradition that was passed down both through the liturgy of the Church and through uh, uh, the Mass. Yeah, and that's a piece of the puzzle that I didn't see, was the power of the liturgy and Mass as the central place where the teachings of Christ and His history, history that were passed on first, before they were put down many years later by the Gospel writers, by Luke, because he's going collecting all the different things. And, and actually, uh, Frank, again, I didn't understand when I was a pastor quite so much, but later, that one clear example of where the oral tradition passing on the stories of Jesus eventually uh, impacts the scriptures is John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. Right. Because here we have the latest gospel written, correct? I mean, we all believe mm-hmm. that that was many, many years, maybe as many as, what, 60 years possibly. Yeah, near the end of the first century in the 90s sometime. Right, and uh, the footnotes in most people's Bibles admit that most of the ancient manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts that we have of this, don't have this story in them. It's added later. Does that mean it was made up? Or do they recognize the power and the trustworthiness of the oral tradition and put in the story that which they've always believed to be true, passed down from the life of Christ? We ran out of time, Frank. I'm sorry. I talked too much. Oh, such a shame. <laughs> and it's such a productive discussion. Well, Frank, thank you for joining us on Deep in Scripture. My pleasure. And I always want, also want to take the time to thank you for your work at Franciscan in the English department. And all you do there is a great witness to the students. Uh, and uh, keep up the good work. God bless you. Thank look, you, Mark. Look forward to seeing you there. All the rest of you, thank you for joining us on this program. I hope this was encouragement to you. Look up these verses for yourself. Pray, prayerfully think about them. and Ask how you would apply those in your life, especially if you're not a Catholic. And maybe as a result of that, the Lord will help you to see the beauty and the fullness of this wonderful church that he's given to us through Jesus Christ, his Son and our Lord. God bless you. See you again next week.